The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Powell. Big news this week with Fairfax New Zealand, one of the largest and most influential media companies, announcing a new name and CEO. Now to be known as Stuff, the company is to be led by Sinead Boucher. The move was very well received from journalists, happy that a fellow journo and someone from the new side of the news business would be in charge. Recently under Sinead, some of the most successful and exciting multimedia work has been coming from the Stuff stable. You would have listened to Black Hands and might have watched The Valley, showing that quality and innovation are working. And Stuff, the website that ate the company, was built with Sinead as digital editor. All great signs for the bigger business and the workers at Stuff in uncertain media times. To chat about the print business and declining print times, the news biz and her career, CEO Sinead Boucher joins us now. G'day. Hi Simon. Hello. Hey, well congratulations. Um, huge role at a pivotal moment and, and so cool that it is, if this was a tech company, we'd say that a product visionary is in charge rather than like an accountant. <laughs> Thanks. I'm really excited um, and only mildly terrified but um, I mean I love the company I've worked there for a long time really enjoyed building up stuff and more lately leading the editorial side of the business and we are a very editorially driven company um, so I'm excited about what the future holds for us. Cool. Should we? We'll jump into kind of like where the company's at at the moment. But should we take a little wander back through kind of your career to get here? You started out on that new side of things, um, and here and overseas. Is that right? Yeah, I started out as a um, as a sort of uh, rural reporter for the press in North Canterbury, and um, great sort of way to cut your chops as a as a young reporter doing a bit of everything. And there were a lot of strange cults in North Canterbury at the time, so it was never dull. Uh, and uh, then I became sort of a police reporter, a crime reporter, and then headed off to the UK um, in the sort of, you know, about time of t- 2000, sort of heading into that sort of millennium, which was that first um, dot-com kind of bubble, uh, therefore making a great time to go and find a job because all the journalists were signing up for startups and things like that. So um, I was uh, luckily a friend of mine, Jonathan McKenzie, who's the editor at Waikato now, was already working there and he had been offered a job at the Financial Times on their website but had decided to stay at the Telegraph where he was and suggested I might maybe I should just rock up in his place and try my luck, which is what I did. So I just turned up and said, well, I'm here instead of Jonathan. 
and the uh, boss there said, okay, come on in, we'll give you a job. <laughs> what, what did that exposure to the, um, the big market forces around uh, technology and also working at such a august publication yeah. as the Financial Times do it for you? It exposed me to a very good staff canteen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smoked salmon for the staff every day. But it was incredible because the Financial Times was an amazing organisation, um, amazing business, and it also uh, just uh, launched FT.com almost as a duplicate of the paper. So they had 400-odd journalists on print, and they decided that meant they needed 400-odd journalists on the web um, and kind of mirrored everything. So aviation reporter for print, aviation reporter for the web. So it was, I mean, I was very fortunate to sort of turn up at the right time and um, was sort of thrown into writing, uh, breaking economic news, uh, macroeconomics, whatever sort of was happening, getting it published on the web. And I found that I just really loved that um, side of the business. I love the immediacy, um, even though in those days we're like, right, it's 40 minutes till the top of the hour and we'll publish then. Um, But it still felt very immediate. Um, and just to be able to work in such an uh, inspiring organisation, um, uh, just uh, that definitely gave me a taste for that sort of digital world and that live news environment and what you could build with technology. And after a couple of other stops, you were able to come back and put that digital experience into practice in New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. I'd gone um, via Reuters um, as a correspondent for Reuters and then my husband and I had our first child in London and we decided to come back to Christchurch um, and I went to the press and was given a bit of a job as um, building up the press website then, which led to um, being offered the first digital editor role for Stuff, um, which at that time was mostly a, um, I had sort of five or six people working for it all together and was just really a repository for the newspaper content um, and maybe some NZPA content but was not really given any, um, didn't have any strategy or love given to it in its own right. So great time to be able to come in and have this um, this product to get my hands on and to really sort of develop and um, grow and all alongside that to kind of try and champion that digital news and digital strategy with the wider Fairfax company. What was the opportunity there, like, um, you, you know, to not, as you say, just duplicate the newspaper or just be a repository for what's happened? What, what was your vision for it and how did it track to that? I think my vision for it was to, I could see the potential, um, you know, it wasn't like the very early days of the internet. There were others overseas doing um, good things on the web, the likes of The Guardian, etc. Um, and I, my vision has always been we can be world class, why can't we do those things? They're not just because we're sitting in New Zealand. Um, so the opportunity was immense because we had this um, huge network of newsrooms and journalists around the country, um, the biggest in the country in terms of that national journalistic um, might, and we had uh, a platform that was really just starting to come into its own or had a lot of potential to come into its own. Those were the days when everyone was like, why are we called stuff that's so embarrassing? You know, we should be called something august. Um, but, you know, of course, nowadays in the eras of Googles and Twitters and all the rest of it, it's just one of the... <laughs> yeah, what, why did you call it stuff? Well, I wasn't part of that original decision, but um, when Stuff Turned 10, we looked back on the um, initial shortlist, and when the alternatives were 
dpnwide.co.nz or pavlova.co.nz. I think stuff was the uh, right choice. <laughs> That's really something. <laughs> and and from, from the get-go, I mean, for people who are maybe Auckland residents, it's very natural to turn on the NZ Herald. But for the entirety of the rest of the country, it's way more natural to turn on stuff. It's a, it's become like the biggest website it in the absolutely. country. Absolutely. And we've got to the point where, um, and this is a unique position anywhere in the Western world that we can find, where a news site is the biggest domestic site of any kind in the country. So that gives us enormous opportunity now to think about how we um, how we capitalise on that from a business point of view. Um, but huge reach and influence and definitely sort of level pegging it with the Herald in Auckland now mm-hmm. as well. An interesting thing that Stuff has done compared to maybe drier news sites has been the involvement of the comments and the communities. Tell me a bit about that. Well, um, from when I first started at Stuff, what we thought was because we are a digital-only brand, we had that freedom, like the spin-off actually, to just develop it in the way we thought would be most interesting and relevant to people. And that didn't uh, make us constrained to be just a serious, dry news site. Um, nor were we um, all about clickbait or anything like that. We just felt like, what, are, what is the average person interested in? Whether well, they're interested in a bit of this and a bit of that, and we can be the best of everything. And that community feel, it became clear really quickly to me that the, the staff audience was very loyal and kind of felt a bit of ownership on what we were doing. So the comments, the um, Stuff Nation contribution yeah. um, platform um, was our way of sort of fostering that community and making sure... Um, there was a big platform for a lot of Kiwi voices. Yeah, I, I guess like also that move to user-generated content, which is the you know big money pot on the internet, because newspapers used to exist. Uh, news as a service kind of grew up around the monopoly on classifieds, and that was why yeah. newspapers could afford all of this journalism. And going into the new age of media, you do need some kind of money pot to... Um, to, to help subsidise things. Was that part of it? It was not actually not really. It was more about we've got this big platform with a big reach. How do we open that up to a lot of other people to have their voices and good stories and important things heard? So when we first launched Stuff Nation, there was a lot of um, you know chat about, oh, they're replacing journalists with free labour. It was actually nothing to do with that. And if we've re- relied only on user-generated content, well, we would certainly not have the audience that we do now and that's not why people come to us but some of those stories have been um, harrowing beautiful um, inspiring they're those sorts of first person people stories experience stories Um, one of the ones that really sticks with me um, was a few years ago we ran a stuff campaign about water safety and trying to do you know lots of drownings we wanted to do our bit to try and educate people and highlight this and this um Mother wrote in this amazing story about watching her five-year-old drown in a pool and not realising that was what was happening to him. Oh, yeah. He was okay. She, someone rescued him, but it was such a powerful story. That was one of our top five most most read stories for the whole year. And, and the message yeah. there was that they don't actually look like they're panicking. So no, you, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And um, and that was powerful in a way that it could never have been if. A journalist had interviewed her and just wrote it. So we see that as part of the whole mix and the whole fabric of what stuff's all about. Yeah, mix is a great word there, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, there's the mix between, I guess, the stories about sensational topics or celebrity that get the clicks 
through to the premium sections. I mean, in a way, there's never been so much great content, but also never so much content that people will be wowsers yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, one of the things that always aggravates me is this um, kind of insistence that we're about trash news or clickbait or anything when it's just the furthest thing from the truth it's not even something that's talked about in any kind of aspirational way in our newsrooms you, you, don't, you don't put measures on clicks you don't tell people write no, stuff that gets no, more clicks no absolutely not we talk about like any good newsroom about um, good stories and what serving our audience and holding people to account and but that doesn't mean that all of those stories um, offset the fact that people are actually interested in reading a live blog of the block and, um, you know, that sort of stuff. That's what they're, they're all talking about. And, um, and you know, the chatter is in life. So we want to reflect that kind of full spectrum of what people are interested in and talking about. But our mission is to kind of serve New Zealanders with um, with journalism that is important to them and, and makes a difference to their communities. And we do that on a big national level, like with projects like The Valley. But we do it by also being able to have a reporter find out that the West Coast um, Council had awarded a big um, contract to a company that had absolutely no experience in that area. So, you know, it's, yeah. that's... That's it's sort of the breadth and scale and depth of our reach that I think is what makes stuff successful. And also the fact that we don't think we have to be something in particular. Yeah, having come from like, you know, stewarding that through being the editorial group, group editorial chief with all of that, what are the things that then change in your role that you are expanding into as CEO? Um, what, are, what are the different, you know, if your challenge before was make the content that, is engaging and gets us to number one. What are the challenges now when the role becomes make the money? Well, I guess that is the challenge now is how do we ensure we have a business that is sustainable and sustains the journalism that's at the heart of that business. And we've already, I mean, the name change from Fairfax to Stuff, which has been signalled, we have to formally implement that um, in good time to change all the <laughs> all the things that have to be changed, um, is about saying, well, now we're a business that is built around the scale of stuff and what that means, and also um, neighbourly. It's grown into a really powerful, it's it's already sort of number 16th size mm. site in the country, and um, about diversifying our revenue and, um, and, you know, what the business looks like. But it all comes back to being able to fund that journalism that therefore brings the audience that all those other businesses can grow, grow off. It's, that, it's a virtuous circle, but that ability to have that strong New Zealand journalism and that, um, I guess, what we like to think of as a, a positive, optimistic view of New Zealand is at the core of everything that we do. So um, my job now is to make sure that the business um, uh, shifts into a model that's sustainable, that's much more digitally focused, and where revenue is drawn from new areas like Stuff Fibre, for example, our ISP. Um, the thing about Stuff Fibre is people say, why would a media company go into an ISP? Well, it's a subscription business, but it's not, it's not a content subscription business, but it's still a subscription business that we use our audience to be able to grow, and the money from that in turn comes back in to fund the newsroom. Okay, so that let, let's kind of look at um, the the way that the money flows there. Um, so for something like um, 
Black Hands, which has been a huge success yeah. all around the world. Um, two and a half million downloads. Two and a half yeah. million Number downloads. one in the UK and Ireland, Singapore, all Australia. Yeah, it's incredible. How, how does that commitment, you know, months and years probably of work, lawyers up the wazoo, <laughs> how does that turn into dollars for you? I guess we don't think about those projects in terms of how they themselves transpose into dollars because that's that's not why you do journalistic projects. You don't do them to see the immediate dollar return. We do those because they are really important stories and we want to produce world-class work for New Zealanders that they will enjoy and consume and make them think in new formats and you know new ways. And Black Hands was certainly that. And we've also got a very strong culture um, around experimentation. And, you know, when, when Martin Van Banen and, and the team were making Black Hands and we were saying, what would we, what would we think would be a successful podcast? What does that look like in numbers or downloads? We had no idea. We, might, we probably would have been ecstatic if it hit 10,000, you know. Um, and we weren't making any money directly out of that and didn't seek to. That, so... We just have to ensure that overall we are a strong enough journalistic um, force with a strong um, funding base to be able to do the things we really want to do and that are really important. In the past with the model, really strong journalism within a paper would be supported by the the ads or, yeah. or whatever else. But in that podcast, it was one of the few podcasts that I've you know really enjoyed and found such compelling listening that didn't have ads all around it and um, supporting it. So is that something, you know, if you were doing it over again, (laughs) would you have popped an advertiser on and said, you pay us by the listener? I think there were some special characteristics about the subject of that podcast. Not a lot of brand alignment. Probably not a lot of brand alignment, but didn't mean it was not a really powerful reader thing. So um, as a result of that, we have got, um, we've launched a new um, podcast initiative internally for for our journalists to pitch their ideas, uh, some amazing ideas, and that we will we will start to make and experiment. And you know, we're learning as we go along too, and how to make a great audio experience for people. Um, and some of those might be more aligned to advertiser support or sponsor support or something like that. Yeah, having having been like at the the lead and in, in, in charge of the kind of growth parts of the yeah. media business, what are the similarities between being an editor and a project leader uh, to being a CEO and what kind of stuff have you had to expand from your journalist background um, as you went through all of those steps of leadership? So my role at the, the my executive editor role, um, I've had uh, oversight over 550 journalists and um, responsibility for not only staff but also all of the newspapers and magazines. So it's been very broad mm. and it's always had that aspect of growing the new and making the older part of the business work as well as it can and it's, you know try and transition our focus into to other things. And so that still carries through into broader responsibilities. But essentially, um, I think I was successful in my editorial uh, role because I had a team of superb editors working around me and in my executive um, CEO role I have a team of superb people leading other parts of the business. My job is to um, ensure that we're really inspiring and looking after our people, that we set a really clear vision and that we also stay really true to the values that make up our 
company, which are quite unique. You know, a, a business based around journalism has its own ethical framework, its own values about why it's there to serve New Zealanders. And, we, and now I have to make sure that they are carried through into the way we do all parts of our business and the new businesses that we, we get into. Is there something that you bring from being a journalist? I, I've found in marketing, business, strategy, finding out things I don't know, yeah. that my, the things that I learned as a um, reporter have been very useful, such as taking lots of information from lots of sources and trying to work out what's important, or talking to lots of people, or questioning whether what you've got is right all Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. All of those things, I think, are really important. So... Um, you know, you and I both know the first thing you learn as a reporter is there's no such thing as a stupid question. Ask the question, and I firmly believe in that. But also that ability to take wide amounts of um, uh, information and kind of distill them down and stand back and look at what that all means is, is important. And if we look at the the actual kind of like role that you're stepping into right now as well, it, it doesn't look like the easiest role in the world to jump into, where you've got the the environment where uh, the company was saying it needed to merge to be viable into the future. Uh, the Commerce Commission denied that the merger could happen. That's still working its way through uh, the courts. And so you're stepping in. Um, are you stepping in to make the business work on its own or to pursue the merger or what kind of a situation is that? <laughs> well, we've even through the merger process, it was never a done deal. So we've always been focused on our own strategy and our own plan. And in a merger situation, um, I mean, there are a lot of fundamental things that don't change about what you need to do for the future. Um, the merger appeal is, will be heard later this year. I don't know how long that will take for a decision. Um, but what we, you know, ourselves and NZME saw was that the merger would give us that, you know, more solid foundation for us to then be able to continue to make the transformation and changes we need to. And particularly it would um, have offered support to those areas that are harder and harder to sustain in that changing um, media environment, revenue environment. And, and that does mean really strong regional journalism and you know presence in a lot of regions. Um, there was a misconception, a definite misconception, that the merger was going to be about slashing and burning journalists, when actually it was the opposite. It was about being able to... Um, forge a business that was strong enough at its roots to continue to support journalism at scale throughout New Zealand. So we do think the Commerce Commission made the wrong call. We understood that they were trying to do that for the right reasons, but that they, I believe they fundamentally misunderstood how independent journalists and editors are, and that it actually doesn't matter a whit to them who owns the company or who runs it because they operate as independent uh, forces. Yeah, it, it seems to be a very difficult environment where the biggest players driving the change are not subject to the Commerce Commission. Your Googles and your Facebooks and the places that are, that are acting, um, they're where people consume their media even if they don't want to call themselves media companies, uh, are the big kind of elephant in the room in that decision. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the frustrations is that um, the Commission basically discounted the impact that they had. They might have acknowledged there was an impact on the advertising market, but they didn't see that that then had an absolute direct impact on the journalism and the function of journalism and how strong it could be and you know, how, therefore the impact on the wider society. Um, so 
you know, we are hopeful around the appeal. Um, we're arguing on points of law, um, but we'll see what will happen there. But in the meantime, we absolutely have to just, you know, get stuck in and make sure we can do whatever we can to build that sustainable business for the future. And, you know, that's where the question pops in about things like paywalls, I guess, with every conversation about this time, where some businesses, uh, locally the National Business Review, internationally the Financial Times, uh, have had great success in using paywalls to, um, to for, for, for high-quality information you can't get anywhere else. Bloomberg, one of the world's yeah. biggest media companies, the same. Is that part of the mix for some of your content? It's not really a core part of our strategy. And, the, you know, those companies you've just named, they're all financial news. Most of the revenue from those comes from corporates buying subscriptions rather than individual people wanting to pay for news that's individually relevant to them. Um, look, for us, we're in... I look all power to the MBR and to others in our country who are making um, choices about how they are going to fund journalism and their model for the future. But for us, when we look at living in a country of a population of only 4.5, 4.8 million people, and you start to extrapolate back from, you know, you might have a mass audience in a small country, how many of those people would subscribe and what those payments add up to, um, on average, around the world, it sort of sits around 2% of your monthly users are prepared to pay to subscribe, even for the New York Times. So those numbers just don't stack up for us against what we could do to bring to use the power of our mass audience around um, advertising, around showing new businesses and services like fibre, and using those kind of revenues to come back in to fund content rather than making a direct payment. But, you know, like everybody, we watch every development with interest and um, and are right behind in championing the decisions that others are making to experiment and, and try and make a good business. The other role that Stuff plays that's different, though, I think, to um, a lot of other media businesses is that we're also a platform. So we're not just a publisher, but we're a platform for other people's content. Um, you know, TVNZ, Maori Television, uh, Newsroom, a lot of others use us now as a way for them to reach their audience or to amplify the reach of their journalism. And we're really proud of that position and also sort of puts us in a, in a I guess, a different mindset about the, what we could do and what that means for our future model as well. So, in the, the last 10, 15 years that have been fascinating and so much change that you've been right at the front of, the next 15 years with the, um, the big media companies using content to bundle, questions of net neutrality, um, yeah. qu- questions of, um, uh, of, of, of duplication of services, you, you know, it's, it's a fascinating time to be owning a fibre company. And is that, is that part of the ISP equation, that if you um, are able to bundle all of these services into a subscription model... Possibly one day, one day, you know, absolutely. But um, we're still sort of in that process of building up what our new digital businesses and services might be, and that will be a big part of the next several years. Um, look, I look ahead to the next three or four years, and I think they are going to bring even more profound change and transformation for all of us than the last ten years. And you know, we've been through this wave of digital disruption. Um, and now we're facing that next bigger wave, I think, of a disruption around things like AI, what that will do, not just not 
to our industry, but to the way society works and to jobs and to, you know, so, you know, the headwinds are by no means behind us or even close. I think one thing we've got really good at doing is adapting to change and realising there is no point hand-wringing and looking back on the good old days and the rivers of gold of classifieds. You just have to be firmly focused on what's ahead and making sure you're reading the signals and seeing what sort of what are going to be the big things around change and um, disruption coming at us in future. Oh, what a fascinating time to be stepping into that role. Thank you so much for uh, such a great wide-ranging chat today. Sinead Boucher, who is the new CEO of Stuff, formerly Fairfax New Zealand. Thank you, Simon. Uh, thank you very much to Jose Barbosa for coming out to the uh, Fairfax soon-to-be staff offices uh, to record today. And thank you very much for listening. If you'd like, get in touch on Twitter at Simon underscore Bound. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.